Well, Lord willing, the idea is to finish uh, today so that we can have our Q&A this, uh, tonight. So you can start praying right now. Uh, go ahead. <laughs> um, well, allow me to read Titus 1.5 to you as I turn to First uh, Timothy 3, and you do the same. For this reason, I, I left you in Crete. You would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. We are putting that text in front of us to begin to get the process started at GBC where we appoint elders. That's one of the things that we know we need to set in order that remains here in this church. We don't just read the Bible so that we can know information and have our minds just kind of filled with good things, but we do it so that we might obey our Lord Jesus. He's the captain of this church. He is the leader. He is the king of it. He's the owner. We can kind of talk about him in lots of different ways. And so, if he says something, we want to do it. And that's where we're at. We need this. It's very relevant, very pertinent to us. We've been at this for three weeks, and my goal is to finish this morning. So, All right, we need elders. We need them. Elders are not just the leaders in the church. They are the shepherds. They are what you might call the fathers to the flock. Overseers who watch over our souls. Hebrews 13, 17. Men who are to lead in the place of Christ. I say that because not that Jesus doesn't lead, but he is in heaven bodily preparing for his return. And in the meantime, we lead here his church where he wants it to go. This isn't meant to be an elder-led church. It is to be an apostle-led church. They are dead, but they left behind their instructions in the New Testament. Jesus gave them the task to go into the world and teach us all that he taught them. The reason... That's how Jesus is going to lead his church. That's how he's going to do it. He's going to do it through the apostles, who that when they die will have left instructions for the church, and so therefore go appoint elders. See how that works? That is how Jesus is going to lead his church through their faithfulness, the deposit of that faithfulness has been given over to men called elders. 
There is no evidence anywhere in the Bible that we are to get new apostles to keep this going. The elders were meant to replace them. The elders would not do what they did. That's the reason why in 2 Corinthians 12, he says, the signs of an apostle were clearly given to us. In other words, to make it clear, these are distinct men. But there is a kind of work that they left us with to do. And that is to carry on the work of shepherding the Lord's church so that it might look like the very shepherd who called himself the good shepherd. The elders have a massive task to help the church move as a testimony of God's saving grace. That he saves sinners and makes them godly men and women to be his witnesses in a lost, blind, dying world that desperately needs to know the salvation that Jesus Christ alone gives. So the elders are given to the church to get us moving in that direction. That direct, which you could call a direction of grace. An elder then accomplishes the shepherding that Jesus would do if he were on this earth. He is then Christ's ambassador to his church, literally. Why do we need elders? Because we need them to do a great work. work is great and we need them to do that to help us to do that what is an elder's greatest work in the church well I mined some old reformation ground to find this answer so I'd like you to hear it and it might surprise you but know what I'm trying to do with this You'll, you'll see listen to Hugh Latimer This was a sermon that he gave called Sermon on the Plow. And he gave it back on January 29th, 1548. So that's been around the block a few times. And now I would ask a strange question. Who is the most diligent bishop and prelate in all England that passes all the rest in doing his office? I can tell for I know him. I know him well. But now I think I see you listening and hearkening that I should name him. There is one that passes all the other and is the most diligent prelate and preacher in all England. And will you know who it is? I will tell you. It is the devil. He is the most diligent preacher of all other. He is never out of his diocese. He is never from his cure. You shall never find him unoccupied. He is ever in his parish. He keeps residence at all times. You shall never find him out of the way. Call for him when you will. He is ever at home. 
the most diligent preacher in all the realm. He is ever at his plow. No loitering, excuse me, no loitering, nor loitering can hinder him. He is ever applying his business. You shall never find him idle, I warrant you. And his office is to hinder religion, to maintain superstition, and to set up idolatry, to teach all kind of papery. He is ready as he can, as he can be wished for, to set up his plow, to devise as many ways as can be to deface and obscure God's glory. Here we go. Here's the connection. Oh, that our prelates would be as diligent to sow the corn of good doctrine as Satan is to sow cockle and darnel. End quote. Yeah. Boy, why do we need elders? I'll tell you the reason why. Because Satan works hard. And if you think that he doesn't know the address to 89406, he knows where we live. And we can only hope that he knows where Grace Bible Church is. Because that means that we've been preaching Christ. We need elders who would be as diligent to sow the corn of good doctrine. Matthew 16, Jesus said the gates of Hades would not prevail against the church. How does he accomplish that? Through elders, the shepherd against the devil's shepherding. That's it. We need men like that in this church, beloved. So, we go back to Titus 25. How do you appoint elders? What is the process? Let's finish what our Lord started here. We're getting to the process by asking some questions. And the first one we worked through was what is the role of an elder? And it's there in your notes. It is this, that the church is led by a plurality of qualified men who unanimously, equally, and autonomously shepherd the local church. Now, we're not going to get into that statement. We took two uh, Sundays to explain it, so you can go back and listen to that, and that would be good. Next question, who can be an elder? First of all, one who desires it. First Timothy three one can't be something a person is guilted into. Can't be something a person feels compelled to be and do because there's a need. I have heard this. I've seen it. Where you get people serving as elders because there just is nobody else. That is not the way to go about doing it. It has to be men that have that Acts 13 call by the Holy Spirit when he said, set apart for me Saul and Barnabas to the ministry work that I have for them. Those are the kind of men. Starts with desire. 
You want to be that man. You understand the role. You know what you're getting into. And you say to yourself, I want to be that man. It would seem that the Lord is calling me to be that man. To lay it all on the line. You might not feel qualified or smart enough or godly enough or experienced enough. But this is a man who has a burning passion to do God's work this way. And so you start there. But it isn't just desire. There have been many a man that have had the desire but maybe have lacked in some other areas. And so point number two It also needs to be one who meets the qualifications. And we're there in 1 Timothy 3, 2 through 7 in seeing this. Now we're talking about not a perfect man. I mean, an elder is like Paul in Philippians 3, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect. We're not talking about putting a calculator to the man's character, but a compass. We're not talking about the measurement of beans, but a plumb line to see if the man's character is straight across. Is it it pointing north? Saul in 1 Samuel looked the part as Israel's first king. And he laughed at the thought of David, especially his brothers. But but David was the one that was appointed to be king. Why? Because he was a man after God's own heart. His compass pointed north. 1 Samuel 16, 7. Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Now that's why for the Lord, the leaders of his church will represent him, who represent him will have to be men of high spiritual character. So what does that mean? We'll look at it here. First Timothy 3, 2. The overall umbrella above reproach above reproach you can't reproach him that is you can't grab a handle on his life that sticks out when it comes to his character he he deals with his sins he is faithful to Christ and we we showed you that in order to discover who this man is in this church there needs to be then some sort of test and we saw that from chapter 3 verse 10 He says, regarding the deacons, let them also be tested. And that comes right after describing the elders. And so the also points back, letting us know it's not just deacons that are tested. It's the elders that are tested. They must be tested. In other words, they must pass the test. They have to be, you could say it this way, they have to be proven. How? First one, proven character. And we went through those in verses 2 and 3. The second one, 
proven family. And that's where we left off. Now look with me at verses 4 and 5 again. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? We combine that with what Paul tells Titus in, in Titus 1.6 of his letter to him. Same kind of qualification, having children who believe not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Now what this is saying is that the elder's family is the proving ground for his shepherding, okay? And the the main question that we're asking to accomplish that is are his children under control? Are his children under control? Is he getting them, them there while protecting their dignity? Not with force, not with guilt or manipulation. Is there a gospel presence that produces a kind of faithfulness to the message that his children stay within the lanes of the boundaries of the gospel? That's what Titus 1.6, by the way, is getting at. By the way, one of the reasons why you as a parent would ever discipline your child, that is, and we say that is using the rod uh, as correction, would be because they have done something that is inconsistent with the gospel. You see? always we want to come back to the gospel. If you don't make it that, they will soon understand a wrong understanding that you are trying to get them to somehow obey the law so that they might be able to someday obey the law and be good people. We must always connect them to the gospel. That is, that Jesus Christ did something for them that they cannot do for themselves in dying in their place for their sins. They have sins that Jesus died for. Notice in 1 Timothy 3 that the issue is control. And in Titus 1.6, it is not accused of dissipation or rebellion, which is another way of saying under control. They both are speaking of the same thing. You say, well, what's the difference? Why do you have to say it differently? Quite possibly because Timothy's elders seem to be with younger children and Titus with older children. We don't even know that for certain. But you look for the same thing. How did the man shepherd his home? See, that's what you're looking for. How can you tell? Look to see if there's control. As we come back to this, we need to think about a few things from these verses. First, that word manage. It means to stand before. The father stands before the family and makes certain that it is spiritually well. The mother isn't the main one responsible. The father is. 
Father is. The Father is. Let me help you with that. Just like you'll notice it is Adam's sin that we talk about. You realize that Eve sinned first. But it's Adam's sin that we speak of. Why? Because he's responsible. And so there's that. Second thing, will you notice that the main characteristic of the home is control, self-control. What does that mean? Simple. (laughs) Kids that obey their parents, right? In fact, you could say this way, kids that honor all authority over them. Nothing stands out more to me that a kid doesn't get that than when you see them outside of the context of their parental authority and absolutely abusing it. They don't, there's something broken. There's something that's, that's not right. We talked about the main characteristic of a child according to the scripture last time. You could point to that from Ephesians 4 and Matthew 11. In Ephesians 4, Paul tells us that children are tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. In other words, it's like the flavor of the week for them. This week we believe this. The next week we believe that. And this other week we believe the other thing. And you might come to find out it's just simply because Johnny became Bobby. You know, he was friends with Johnny and now Johnny's old news and it's all about Bobby. And it's just changing all over the place. Tossed to and fro. Jesus tells us they go back and forth between dancing and mourning. We mentioned that last time. Jumping around crazy to crying and complaining like a grieved downcast. And so what Paul is telling Timothy is they can't be like that. They have to have control. And it is your role and job as a parent to give them that. And the point to Christ and to help them understand Jesus died on the cross to give you self-control. Now what does control like this look like? Self-governed. In other words, they have been trained to stop themselves from things that are outside the boundaries of authority. Let's talk a little bit about that. Whose authority? What are we talking about when we talk about authority? Whose authority? Let me give you a few thoughts here. First, God's authority. The first authority that your child must come to respect and understand is God's authority. And so you teach them God's word, right? Second authority is your authority. What are the rules or boundaries in your own home? You say, oh, well, wait a minute. We're one of those freewheeling families. We we try not to stifle uh, natural expression. Well, that's a problem. 
Not only for you, but for us. Okay? Proverbs 22 tells us, when we let our children go their natural way, they will never depart from it. And that's a promise, whether negative or positive. They are not going to depart from it. What if I told you that the Bible teaches that children are depraved from day one and you're letting them go their natural depraved way? Why would you do that? They're headed in a bad direction right from the start. Thirdly, the Bible speaks of the authority of the church. And so you teach them to recognize God-given authority right here, right here. Fourth, the God-given authorities in the world. 1 Peter 2, Titus 3, Romans 13, talk about the government. This talks about school teachers. You can talk about bosses in, the, in, in workplaces. Those are God, that's all God-given authority. And then fifth, you have authorities that you pay for, right? I mean... Coaches, music instructors, all sorts of other structured organizations, and you have given permission for them to shape your child in whatever it is. Those are, you could call, I guess you could say steward type authorities, where you've given that over for just a moment or a period of time. There's a huge area where authority is critical. There's one other to consider. In Titus 1, he calls it self-will. And it is the authority over self. To have control over oneself. The Lord told Cain in Genesis 4, sin is crouching at your door, but you must master it. elder's work in the home is to help his children learn to master sin, to master self. Now I really really believe we all get this in our hearts to a degree that there's kind of a wild horse in all of us especially in your kid that needs to be, you know, bridled. George Washington when he was 14 years old wrote a book called Rules of Civility and Decent Behavior in Company and Conversation. And yes, he was 14 when he did this. I got a hold of this, and I thought, oh boy, this is going to be fun. We, we read it to our kids growing up. Just, we sort of were interested to see how far we were off from a George Washington household. Quite a bit. <laughs> but listen to some of his rules. By the way, he wrote 110 of them down. (laughs) I'll just give you a few. First, this is the very first one. Every action done in company ought to be with some sign of respect to those that are present. Pretty good, right? All right, here we go. You see, so far, that's not bad. I like that. Second one. When in company, 
put not your hands to any part of the body not usually discovered. Parents, you're saying, oh boy, uh, gee, we're, we're going to need some work on that one. How about the fourth one? In the presence of others, sing not to yourself with a humming noise, nor drum with your fingers or feet. And on and so forth it goes. Now, you might be thinking, that's crazy and really over the top. You know, those are just George Washington's rules, all right? Let's be clear, not scripture. But I want you to think about this. There's something deeper that I want you to get out of this. If a man, I'm, going to, I'm going to argue from the lesser to the greater here. If a man like him at 14 had that kind of thought about control and management of it, what should God's man in his church called elders have as his boundaries? I don't know that George Washington could have been an elder in this church. I don't know. But I do know that God has called us to his standard for his kind of elder. And the issue is control here. Are your children controlled? What does it take to get them there? That's the work of the godly father. Notice too, he tells us how to get there with all dignity. In other words, you don't embarrass the kid. You don't humiliate them. You recognize that they're in process. And you recognize that process. You have reasonable expectations because of that. It doesn't mean you ignore being able to tell them, remind them of what the standard is that the Lord has, but you still walk with them in it. You teach them. You take them aside and train them. and You show them from God's word what he wants. You, you give them as many illustrations as you can. 2 Timothy 4, you do it with all patience. And you tell them and show them what you do to gain self-control. Why? Why all of this? Verse 5. Because how you do it there will be an indication of how you're going to do it here. Why would the Lord appoint a person who has the house of crazy to come in here and shepherd his church to not be the house of crazy, right? just doesn't make any sense. Now we need to bring in Titus 1.6 on this. Now listen carefully. I've come to see this a little differently. But I'll, at the heart of it, it's still maintaining the same. It's not much different. It's just a little different. Because of what 1 Timothy 3, 4, and 5 teaches. It's a point about shepherding your home and getting your children to respect the boundaries and understand them and live them under them in a, in a controlled way, right? 
I believe that's the same point Paul is making in Titus 1.6. Having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Notice the area of control. Not accused of dissipation, literally wasted living. The same word used in Luke 15 to describe the prodigal son. He squandered his life on wasted living. Now the old view was that your children must be Christians. And I think that would be hard to read that in the first Timothy three, four, and five. That's clearly not his point there. So what does children who believe mean? By the way, it's not helpful to say, uh, well, as long as they're in your home, and when they leave your home, all done. I've seen elders operate at that level. They try to keep things at a, under the wraps as much as they can, and boom, children get out of the home, and I don't care. It's terrible. It's not what he's saying here. The word can also, by the way, believe, be translated faithful, but I believe translating a faithful doesn't help you to get to the meaning. It is the Greek term pistis, and it doesn't, it can be faithful or believe. It's not helpful to know which direction, because if I take faithful, I have to, in order to get a, a correct interpretation, I would have to answer the question, faithful to what? Faithful to who? Because that's always what the word faithful leads to. It's not just general faithfulness. Can't be. It would seem in light of 1 Timothy 3 that it means faithful to the boundaries that dad set for godly living in 1 Timothy 3. You are not contrary to the beliefs that shape those boundaries in that home. And that's why he says, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. I mean, your children might grow up and not be born again. What then? Well, is there a life that could be described by control or not accused of dissipation or rebellion? And I believe... I mean, to get to that place, you would really have to look at this thing case by case. This is not just a, okay, first question, all right, yes or no. Second question, yes or no. It's not that at all. You really have to take a look. So many shades for parenting here, but you, you use this blueprint, right, to work through it. So it's a point about how the father has parented. Did he honor God by bringing the gospel into the home? By living it out? Was the authority of the word clear in the home? Did he do it in a way that was dignified? And I realize at this point, you probably have many, many questions. Bring them tonight. We'll see. Because as you can see, I have a handful of more questions. All right, here we go. Let's get to the next one. Proven character, proven family, proven spiritual maturity. Back to 1 Timothy 3 here, verses 6 and 7. And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into the reproach and snare of the devil. Now will you notice right the, the, the 
there that the devil is mentioned twice in this point. How can the devil get into the church? Right here. Get the church to move too fast on men. Get the church to think that they need warm bodies, that character and family doesn't matter, that anyone can do. Now I have seen some biblical scholars that think when you put together the culture back then and the flow really of the Old Testament and New Testament history that the age 40 seemed to be a sort of a general starting time to even consider a person. But I don't believe that that's Paul's point here. But I also think that that's not a bad thing to kind of start with. It just You have to be careful. You just can't make that a stipulation, I think. It's kind of a, kind of a sliding rule on that one. Paul is saying, focus, I believe this is what he's saying, focus on maturity more than the age number. It's about spiritual maturity. I have seen some very spiritually mature young men. I've seen some very uh, immature older men. This is not someone who has just become a believer, not a novice, he says. Why? Because they, they, they come with unbridled passion and little experience guided by wisdom that the Lord has forged into their lives. Notice that every young believer struggles with that he will not become conceited. Every young believer struggles with pride. If you're a brand new Christian or a relatively new Christian and you say, what is something that I can work on? Let me just help you. Pride. So how do you know that? Because he says it right here. It's pride. The lack of humility. Thinking that we know, that when we know something, we know everything. By the way, um, so this is thinking too high of yourself or your ideas and abilities and knowledge. Literally, the text says, fall into the crime of the devil. What is the crime of the devil? Pride. Isaiah 14, I will ascend. I will do this. I will do that. The devil said, if you give me a chance... And so we could also say it is self-confidence. One who is abundant in in self-confidence, that doesn't help. Wow, that that person should be an elder. Look how self-confident they are. That doesn't help. Verse 7, don't forget, it's a snare. And so you get to the point where you say and do whatever you want outside of the church because you feel that you're right and you get a reputation. Listen, that won't help the church. The focus then here is spiritual maturity. Even the word elder supports that one who resembles the wisdom of an aged person who has experience on his side. 
person could get that through faithful, humble, consistent, walking with the Lord. By the way, when Peter talks about being an elder, he ends it in 1 Peter 5, 5 by saying, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. See it? So he has to be proven at that level. One last area of qualification. Proven teacher. Notice verse 2, able to teach. Literally, who has an ability at teaching. Now, that doesn't mean it has to be a predominant gift, but it is something that he makes himself have in a greater way. He makes the ability greater. He works at it. It's his passion to... It's also his work. How does he do this? To, he, he, to know the, It is his work to know the Word, to work at the Word, and then to teach the Word. Always teaching. Like Martin Lloyd-Jones said, he became a pastor because he had something to say, because he worked hard at it. Later, chapter 5, verse 17 Let's remind ourselves of it. He's right there. The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor. That means pay them. Especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Paul reminded Timothy about elders' work in 2 Timothy 2.15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed. Accurately handling the word of truth. 2 Timothy 3.16, the word of God is profitable for teaching. 2 Timothy 4.2, be ready with it with great patience and instruction. That's teaching. Verse 3, there's coming a time where people will try to accumulate teachers in accordance to their own desires, but you endure hardship and keep teaching. Paul tells Titus, Titus 2.1, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. In 2.15, speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Just keep Teaching. Speak the word. Teach it. In the end of the epistle to Titus, chapter 3, verse 14, our people must also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs. How do you learn something? Well, part of it is you have to be taught it. You learn by being taught. Make sure you just keep teaching them things. Titus? So he has to be a man who can clearly teach. He has the ability to do it. Whether it was an ability by gift or an ability because he he worked at it. Got himself to a place where he grew in ability. Let me give you a few more on who can be an elder. Number three, one who exercises shepherding. One who exercises shepherding. You don't wait till you're an elder to start shepherding. This is a spiritual DNA sort of thing. You say, what's shepherding look like? We'll turn over now to chapter 4. 1 Timothy 4. I'm going to show you. I'm going to run through this pretty quickly. Verse 6, I'm pointing out these things. Say, what things is he talking about? Verses 1 to 5. Exposing false teachers and their their false teaching. You'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus. That's what an elder looks like. He does that. 
Well, you notice the direction of shepherding here. Verse 6, it starts with yourself. Constantly nourish on the words of faith, he says. An elder is one who reads the Bible for himself. He does it because he must feed himself. He wants to know Scripture because he must know who God is. He must know His will. Not because he wants to go teach some class or run some thought group or, you know, whatever, but because he must know God Himself. Constantly nourish, it says. And so you feed your soul first so that you have somewhere to lead them. Beloved, this is absolutely crucial that the men that lead us are filled men. Nourished, it says. Tell me about your reading plan. Tell me what you're studying. Not for your class. Not for your counseling preparation. Not for the next meeting. Tell me what you're studying for your soul. And that study becomes a routine, verses 7 through 8. So the second thing, the first thing is for himself. Secondly, he works hard at it. Notice how the shepherding works this way. Shepherding is hard work. Verses 7 and 8. So the first one is, you study for yourself, and it becomes a routine now, verses 7 and 8, of hard work. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit. Godliness is profitable for all things. Work at it like a person in the weight room or or on the you know or on the track. Notice in verse ten, for it is for this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on all on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. You know what he's telling Timothy? There is benefit to all people when the elders work hard, but the greatest benefit is to believers. So that's the first two guidelines for shepherding. It starts with you, and then secondly, make sure it is a routine you work hard at. Thirdly, bring down God's authority to them. How does shepherding work? You bring down God's authority to them. Verse 11, prescribe and teach these things. Literally, command and teach. The present tense, habitual carrying out of the command. Continue to command and teach. People will have a hard time with authority, so don't give up. Don't back down. Just keep it going. Break down God's authority repetitively. Fourth, show them transformation. You want a shepherd? Show them transformation. Require transformation, listen, from you and from them. In fact, say it a different way. From you and then them. Show them more than you tell them. Look at verse 12. 
Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. That's shepherding. That's shepherding. Show them transformation. Fifth, make the climate Bible-saturated. Make the climate Bible-saturated. Look at this, verse 13. He just got to just say teaching, but then he has to say this. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Didn't you sort of already say that? Well, yeah, I'm saying it in a different way. What do you mean by just make the whole deal filled with Bible? How many times does he have to say teaching, by the way? I mean, he wants a climate of it, a culture of it. Always Bible. Expose them to it, explain it, and then exhort with it. I mean, should always be, well, what does the Bible say? We should always be talking like that around here. But what does the Bible say? That should be elder talk, by the way. Sixth, don't hide your gift. Don't hide your gift. Verse 14, that's what he means when he says, do not neglect the spiritual gift within you. I mean, God has all kinds of elders that come with all sorts of shape and all sorts of size when it comes to teaching and preaching and shepherding. So don't hide it. I've been around, I've been around elders who kind of almost sheepishly, apologetically, well, you know, I know this, I mean, this is more of a kind of a, administrative way of looking at it. Like, what, are you kidding me? You are so strong in that area of administration. I need to hear what you're about to say because I have a feeling this is going to be good. Really good. Go. Say it. Seventh. Be vulnerable. You want to shepherd well? Be vulnerable. What do you mean by that? Well, they need to see you grow. And that can't happen if you're some distant guy telling people what to do. Look at verse 15. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. He's talking about people being able to see you grow. This is probably the most intimidating I'm going to say the second most intimidating thing for, I think, an elder. First would be that he is called by the Lord, and so he has to account before the Lord. The second is that that vulnerability, he, he, the Lord wants his progress, for everybody to see his progress. And so that means that they'll see, they're going to see you confess your sin. They will see you be immature and then correct that and grow. They will see you come to stronger convictions and admit when you could have done something better. They will see you become more like Christ right before their eyes. It should happen. That's a, that's a part of shepherding, shepherding. And then an eighth guideline here, keep the line of your doctrine and your life closely tied together. Keep the line of your doctrine and your life closely tied together. Verse 16. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching, your doctrine. 
persevere these things, or as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. This is the final checklist for shepherding. Maybe your big question as an elder, here's the evaluation. First, how's your character? Pay close attention to it. Know it. Second, how's your doctrine? Into your teaching. Now listen, if you answer well to both those questions, then move on to the next one. Thirdly, how's your resolve? What's he say? Persevere in these things. You know what that tells me? There's going to come a time in the church where you're going to be questioned and told, we don't want this. You're going to be tempted to try to please people. Don't do it. Instead, pay close attention to two things. Yourself and your teaching, and then stay the course. If you can check mark both of those, stay the course. Stay the course. But the people want, stay the course. Why? What's he say? Because God's going to use that to be assurance of your salvation to you, and he will use it to save others. See it? So who could be an elder? One who desires it. One who meets the qualifications. One who exercises shepherding. And then, number four, one who sees himself as God's steward. Turn for just a brief moment to Titus 1.7. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. This is the word oikonomos, house manager, manager of a family. Now listen here. A steward is someone who is responsible for caring for something that belongs to another. The word, this is a quote from a lexicon here, the word emphasizes the commitment of a task and its responsibility to someone. The elder then realizes the church isn't his. It's not his. That's why it's always confusing for me. Someone says, hey, how's your church? Me? Well, I don't have a church. It's not mine. I don't have it. He does. You mean Jesus' church? At 665 Sheckler? All right, let's talk. There's a deep connection to the fact that you do this for Jesus. It's, it's all about Him. Now, what's He a steward of? Three things. First, the people, the church. You have to get it in your mind, they don't belong to you. And so, because of that, the elder is interested in counseling and discipleship and fellowship. That's, that's why it doesn't help if a person says he's, re, he's a relational or people person. I mean, if you don't see yourself as a steward, then it doesn't matter how relational you are. Second thing, the elder is a steward of the word. 
you have the precious word of God as revelation and it is not yours to just wield around willy-nilly. Get it right. It's on borrow, by the way. That's why in 1 Timothy 6.20, O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. 2 Timothy 1.14, guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. What's the treasure? Souls and Scripture. And so because he is a steward of Scripture, he is interested in preaching the Word and teaching classes and equipping saints and ministries like flock and family school. Here's the third thing an elder is a steward of. And that is things. Things. And so he is interested in taking care of this building and the money that is given and anything to keep us gathering and serving. And by the way, this is where deacons come in. And the reason why the Lord has given servants, that's what the word deacon means, to the church is to free up the elders for the ministry of the word and prayers. And so there's a stewardship that is even accomplished that way. Isn't that wonderful? All right, real quick, as we bring it together, let me get through some of these other questions here so that I can guide us to tonight. What is the process in appointing them? Number one, slow. Go slow. First Timothy 5.22, Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. James 3.1, it is a stricter judgment for the ones who are appointed elders and teachers in the church. Hebrews 13.17, you will be called to account to the Lord, so you go slow in the process. Take your time. Make sure. No rush job. We haven't had more, more than one elder for over two years. That doesn't exactly scream rush, you know. That's true. But that's a the Lord wants us to be that way. Point number two. Secondly, steady. Steady. Not only do you go slow, you make faithfulness the greatest criteria. This is the training side of things. You train him. Growth through the ups and downs of ministry. 2 Timothy 2.2 The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This is that reproduction point that we made earlier a few weeks ago. Let me also remind you all these points that we're going through they relate very well with parenting. You parent this way as well. You want your kids to replace you someday. Seasoned, point number three, seasoned. Luke 16.10, you look for the fruit. Listen to Luke 16.10. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. Faithful in little, faithful in much. You look for the fruit in his ministry. Can he be faithful in small things? Oh, I know how it is. When I... Since that I was called, I wanted the I wanted the big stuff. No, 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 no. 
be faithful little things. It took me forever to f- figure that out. You look for the fruit in his ministry, the gospel that goes out, the holiness in the life, the love and warmth for Christ and his flock. All right, let's ask another question. So what are you looking for? Simply put, three words. Know, be, do. Know, do they know the right things? Sound doctrine. An understanding of the Bible. An understanding of discipleship. B. Do they have the right character? You know, when we talk about right character, we're really measuring it against Christ. Not against ourselves. Not against how you grew up. Why do we do that all the time? Do you not remember the heartache growing up? Say, oh, I just want to... You know. Say, what? you're looking a whole lot like mom and dad. It's like, why don't we just skip mom and dad and go straight to Jesus, Right? they have the right character here's a, another one do are they involved in ministry here in the lo- in this local body are they serving and so you're going to have to train them well that leads to the next question well what's involved in training them I tried to make it easy for you see the word train here we go what's involved in training them time T for time. Set a, set a reasonable timetable with expectations, okay? You, you have to set a reasonable timetable. I think when people think to themselves, I'm in training, but I have no idea what the, where, the, where is the light at the end of the tunnel, it can be a little bit discouraging. R, read. Get them reading the right things to get that sound doctrine and Bible knowledge and an ability to counsel believers. It's one of the things we've been trying to do over the last couple of years. We've really given a great, great focus. Honestly, classes like what we're doing right now, the doctrine of salvation, that's where that came from. Because we really want to equip to really give people that someday could be future elders the stuff that they need. And then the, the spillover for the rest of the body is not bad either. A, affection for Christ and for the body. And so you look for that. You call for that. You encourage that. can't just be about the externals. The heart has to be there. And so we talk about the heart when you're, when you're involved in training. You talk about the heart. Again, look at this in parenting as well. If you're not talking about their heart and it's just all about do's and don'ts, you're really not going to get a person who's interested in things like confessing sin and humility and in loving Christ. What does that have to do with do's and don'ts, right? I invest. Give them a portion of the flock to see what they do with them. You'll notice, I mean, we, we, we're, we're going this direction. 
maybe you've noticed, but you might notice even more as we move forward, as you see various people, oh, that guy got to teach, you know, at men's breakfast. Or, oh, that person now all of a sudden is leading a flock group. What's going on there? Well, it might be that there's a, there's some training ground right there. The opportunity to see. And then end, nudge, nudge. Encourage others to give them feedback. Say, why? Because they need to know where they're at, right? It's helpful. All right, let's bring this to a conclusion here. By asking the very last question. And this now has to do with you and I. Why does the Lord want his church led by elders? Why? Let me end with eight reasons why. (laughs) You say, eight? That's a big number. That's less than ten. Eight reasons. I mean, overall, really, I mean, we, we want to move his people through godly men to be a testimony of his grace, right? I mean, ultimately, that's it. But let me give you eight reasons. First of all, the Lord... Why does the Lord want His church led by elders? First of all, because we need visual, don't we? I mean, I want to follow Christ. I, he's not physically here. He, and I, and I, I'm thankful that He is in heaven. But, but it sure helps seeing people live it out, right? We need visual. It helps to have a picture. Secondly, we need protection. We need protection. Titus 1.9, holding fast the faithful word, he's talking about elders here, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort and sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. In other words, teach us so that we have the right people here that need to be here and then refute those who might not be the right people. Refute the contradictors. We need protection. We're sheep. We're called sheep, right? Sheep need protection. So we need visual. We need protection. Thirdly, we need to be taught. We just need to be taught. Do not be under the delusion that, you know, you can self, be self-taught. I mean, how many times does the Bible have to say something like this? Proverbs 14, verse 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end is death. I mean, we always think our way is awesome. That's why we need to be taught. You see what I'm saying? We need to be taught. 2 Timothy 4, 2 and 3 really give that. Fourth, we need example. The visual is just so that you can see it. The example is more than just seeing it. This is the showing us how to do it. First Timothy 4.12. Show us how to do it. How? Oh, I would, I, I would love to hear... I would love to hear parents. We can be so prideful, can't we? I would love to hear parents that just said, Can you show me how? 
I honestly, I honestly don't hear that a whole lot here. I don't know why. Show us how. We need example. We need to be shown how. We need accountability. Acts 6. The church grew when there was church discipline. You'll see it there if you read it. Actually, it's Acts 5. Acts 5. Ananias, Sapphira, and right after that says the church grew when there was church discipline. We need direction. Proverbs twenty nine eighteen. Where there is no vision, the people are unrestrained, it says. We need direction. And elders help give us direction. Uh, here's a seventh one. We need reproduction. Secondivity 2.2 again. But we need that. We need that. And the elders will help us to accomplish that. And then finally, we need membership. We need membership. Listen to this. Membership is the response to eldership. Who are the elders supposed to keep from uh, keep from straying the members those that belong who belongs members who are they the ones who have formerly become members now because time is a real thing i have some other quotes that i would love to share with you regarding membership if you want to bring some questions about that tonight, I will have something to say about that. Um, but I'll save that for, for tonight. Let's pray. Lord, we have covered such a vast ground with regards to um, elders. and We realize, Lord, these are people that you have given to the church, Lord, to lead your church, Father. And I know with myself, I feel so inadequate when I hear things like what we've gone through these last four weeks. But I praise you. I pray, Lord, you would raise up men for the sake of your name, Lord. We might give you glory. And Father, may it be um, that we, Lord, uh, would look more like Christ in this. So we pray for this. In Jesus' name.